0: welcome to ashes with ash a storytelling podcast from your tobacconist community bringing you stories of life behind the cigar join me on this adventure to find the coolest cigar lounges smoke some lovely cigars and seek out the most incredible stories from our cigar lounge friends owners and customers let's tap into these untold stories with a little smoke and ash Welcome back everybody. It has been a while. Welcome back to the Ashes with Ash podcast. I've been so busy with work and with life and with turning 30 and I've been celebrating in Barcelona. It's been great, but I've been missing you guys so much. This is this is my passion. I love hearing these stories and smoking these cigars with you and sharing these stories. It's just... Been the best time of my life so and i can't think of a better story than this one today to relaunch if you will the ashes with ash podcast this year this is such a good story it'll make you laugh it'll make you cry it'll scoot you to the edge of your seat and it will inspire the absolute shit out of you to be honest <laughs> so Grab a cigar, any cigar, because after this, you're going to remember the cigar you smoked when you first heard this story. And I promise you, this will just be the first time that you've heard this story. So grab yourself a cozy fall cocktail, unless you're driving, of course. And if you are driving, be sure to pull over if your eyes fill up with tears. Safety first here at the Ashes of Dash podcast, okay? <laughs> All right, let me tell you about the episode that's coming up. We're welcoming Deetra, a newish sister of the leaf. Uh, Within the past couple years, she's been she joined our community thanks to the incredible humans at the Harlem Cigar Room, East Harlem, New York City. If you have never been there, you definitely need to the most welcoming cigar lounge like just incredible people. Great selection of cigars. Awesome vibes. Okay, check out East Harlem Cigar Room whenever you can. And you all may have heard of Dietra's story on Humans of New York. So those of you that don't know what Humans of New York is, It's like a, it's a photo blog and it's a book created by Brandon Stanton in 2010, where he interviews strangers in New York City, just on the streets, and he shares their stories. He's an incredible writer and photographer and has written some of the most powerful, heartbreaking, inspiring, loving, and courageous stories that the world has ever heard. And I'm sure most of you know about this, but some people might not know what Humans of New York is, so I got to explain it a little bit, but definitely look it up. If you're looking for some inspiration or anything, he has the best stories. And this is definitely one of those stories. He picked the right person to interview. She's incredible. She's been through so much. And she's overcome so much. And she's just an absolute inspiration. You know what, I'll just, I'll let her tell you the rest. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. and yeah, and after you hear it here, go read the full story on Humans of New York. You'll have to look her up. And yeah, anyways, I hope you all enjoy. All right, so Dietra, welcome to Ashes with Ash, and welcome to the cigar community. I know you're pretty new to the community. Welcome, Thank you for being here with us today and sharing your story. The first question I usually ask is, how did you get into cigars? And I know that your whole story kind of leads up to that. So let's just jump into it. Tell us how it all started, where you're from, where it's going. Tell us the whole story.
1: Thank you, Ash Ashley, for having me. Um, honored to be here. Um, actually, how I got into cigars, believe it or not, is via prayer. So it was 2020, I had had COVID at the first, was very bad, fell down a flight of stairs, nine-month concussion, a lot of stitches, had acute renal failure. And so we're into June or July, and um, my oldest son, who brought me to New York in the beginning, um, now lives somewhere else, was keeping tabs on crime. We were having trouble, and he was like, I'm getting a little worried, you know, if you thought about moving, you know, I may yank you. And um, he's like, Mom, get out in the neighborhood every week and just get a feel. You have a really good gut. So I did that. And the sidewalk cafes opened. And if you remember after being locked down in 2020, these sidewalk cafes had flowers and you had people and you had music. And it was a beautiful thing to be back out into the atmosphere. And so one of my drummer, my band, would invite me to the wine room for a glass of wine, and I would meet him there, and my table that I would sit at every week was right next door to the cigar room. All these guys outside smoking, they were so much fun to watch. You know, They had some music playing. They didn't have flowers at the cigar room, but there would be a bunch of them and their laughter and the smell of cigars. You know, And I just enjoyed that feeling of stability. They brought this layer of authority and stability and protection to that corner of New York for me. And after the year I'd had, it felt good. So I would come every Tuesday, meet Bobby. And so I told my son, I said, I have a plan. And my prayer was this. So God, you know, he's worried about crime. And what I need to know is, do I need to leave New York? I am an older woman. I am living here alone do I need to be concerned about this? But if you could protect me, and I need to know, and then I need my son to know. So I said, you know, I walk through this sea of men. I always nod and say good evening. And I I just love the atmosphere. And so I'm going to introduce myself. You know, the more people you know, the safer you are. And he goes, that's a good idea. And so I was at my table. I started coming Tuesdays and Fridays by this time. And uh, one of the gentlemen walked to my table and he said, You look lovely. And I said, Thank you. And as I left, I thought, Well, he spoke first. So I just went over and I said, Thank you. And my name is Dietra, So I'm at two. And um, they were like, Why don't you come smoke a cigar? And I was like, Oh, guys, I, I've never smoked in my life. And they said, Well, roll out the rug carpet. And so the next week I came down. One of the men was like, You know, hey, we look forward to you coming down. You light up the corner. And I said, Thank you. I'm Dietra, I'm at six more. And it just felt like this became my home, you know, my corner of New York. And um, so the next week I came down early. I brought my computer to finish work. And one of the men was just out by himself. And, um, you know, he's like, we uh, would like to offer you protection. And I was like, the word protection stopped me. I called my son. I said, come, I'm going to smoke a cigar. And I started smoking cigars as a way to be part of a community and have my own space, have an area to where I felt secure, you know, and that if I, something happened, you know, there on my corner, I had stability. And so I've been smoking cigars for two years. And this Harlem Cigar Room has just become a place where, Remember the old TV show, Cheers? You're probably too young. I do, I remember it. Yeah, and that theme song where everybody knows your name. Yes. This is that place for me. And I have just uh, met so many amazing people, gotten an opportunity to be a part of a world that I never expected to smoke a cigar in my life. And so uh, someone told um, Brandon Stanton, who does Humans of New York, about me, And he reached out and asked where I wanted my picture, and I said, in front of my cigar room. And so the story was launched June 9th, and somehow the cigar has become a symbol around the world of resilience and freedom. So I decided to, you know, maybe design my own cigar and talk to the owner, Felix, and I went to the Dominican Republic with him and came home with a line of three cigars. And being uh, uh, from Arkansas, And I was a pastor's daughter, pastor's wife for 54 years of my life and found that I needed to um, escape uh, some bad situation and got brought to New York and have found a life of freedom and peace and joy and love and acceptance. And so Thursday night, I'm launching uh, Dietra's Story and it's a line of three cigars here at the Harlem Cigar Room.
0: Amazing. Oh, my gosh. I cannot wait for that. And I love that it's called Dietrich's Story, because a lot of when you're smoking a cigar, it comes everyone smoking a cigar comes with a story. And yours is very rich and very intense. And it shows everything that smoking a cigar does. It gives you freedom and community and a place of purpose. And I just love that. So Share with us your story, but while you do, don't forget to smoke your cigar, because I know a lot of the times when I'm interviewing, people get stuck talking, and they have to relight their cigar, so feel free to take a pause whenever you need to. So tell us the story from the beginning.
1: Well, (laughs) that's a big deal from the beginning. Let me me go ahead and take a puff on my cigar. Think about that. Like I said, I was a pastor's daughter, pastor's wife. Um, very ultra-conservative Baptist. You know, SBC is always in the press for being conservative. We were more conservative. And while that is not a bad thing in itself, uh, it can hide people with things that are very abusive. Mm -hmm. And they hide behind the name of God and, uh, you know, the Bible and control and manipulate. And that's what I found in my life. I'm the mother of seven children. Uh, I home-educated them. Um, I loved my life. I loved being a pastor's wife. Um, But there were hard things. And in my marriage, there were very, very hard things. And I begged for over 30 years for him to get help uh, and couldn't put my finger on what was wrong. I just knew something was really bad wrong. But like, I will say, you know, when you make a commitment, and it was a commitment to me, I just knew that he would one day find the key and realize how cruel he was and love me. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't tell anybody for 32 years. I knew within three weeks of being married that I wanted out. Mm -hmm. But you don't do that in that world. You don't do that. And I just thought, oh, my, you know, I need to submit and be the kind of wife he is and love him and forgive and, you know, all of those trite sayings which is true, but there are some things that um, go beyond those things. So I I finally, after 32 years, talked to somebody, and, you know, I carried what I call Polaroid snapshots of my marriage into this meeting, and it was kind of, you remember the old Highlights magazine where you'd say, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah, yeah. And so these were my Polaroid snapshots, and I kind of laid them out in front of her describing these situations. And she was like, if he was beating you, would you leave him? I said, of course. I mean, of course. I know that's wrong. And she said, what, you'd be better off if he beat the crap out of you every day. And sometimes a sentence can be spoken into your life, and it's almost like it has an electrical current, and this light bulb comes on, and you can see. And I could see the broken bones inside of me, I could see the bruises that didn't show anywhere, but that I had been feeling physically and emotionally, internally, but couldn't figure out why. And she said, in fact, it would be better for you if he beat the crap out of you every day. At least you could see what he was doing. And so I, you know, to handle that, I went home and apologized for being a bad wife And I said, you know what? I thought I was being loving and submissive and forgiving. And instead, I have found out I'm enabling. And I'm not that kind of woman. And I said, I'm through enabling. You're going to figure this out. I've begged you for over 30 years. And now I finally, you know, this is wrong. And I'm not helping you anymore. Because I was doing something using God's name to hide very bad things. And I wasn't going to be a part of it. So a year and a half later, I brought in a mediator, an interventionist. Both men were horrified, and I watched the abuser win them over. And so we're driving along the interstate one evening. It's just he and I in our suburban, and I'd been researching abuse. I could check off boxes, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And... He uttered a passive, aggressive, charming thing to bring me back under his authority. And I snapped. I was tired. How I don't didn't commit suicide, I don't know. How I didn't die from a heart attack, I don't know. And he just, I snapped, I looked at him and I said, You're a son of a bitch. And I really don't know who's more shocked. And as I'm sitting there being shocked, I'm like, well, that felt good. And he finally had something on me. He could finally prove, you know, that I was a bad wife. And he goes, I'm going to pull over and tell you something. I was like, you go right ahead. And he pulled over on the side of the interstate, got in my face with his finger yelling at me. And he would never yelled at me, but I'd never called him a son of a bitch, you know. New territory for both of us. I don't know. It I like, said, in that moment, I just got my purse, opened the door of the suburban, and started walking down the interstate. And uh, a car picked me up. Wow. And uh, she got out of the car and she was like, Would you like a ride? And I said, I would. She said, God said to stop and pick you up. Wow. And I said, I told him I needed help. And her and her daughter drove me to a hotel. I called one of my sons and he said we'll get you a hotel room. Cause the last year and a half was hellish. Yeah. So my oldest son heard about it, got me and brought me to New York City. I got here June twentieth of twenty
0: fifteen. Wow. That is just insane. Like I'm speechless. Good for you. I I mean that is just incredible to get out of a situation like that and to have to learn and relearn everything about your life and yeah. to just, you're just, you knew you had to get out. You were so ready. That was it. You were done. And you were ready to start over.
1: Yeah.
0: That's just unbelievable. You said you don't know how you didn't kill yourself. I think this is why, because you had a purpose. You had a reason. You had to share this story. You had to meet these people like that's why I mean that's just incredible so how what was the most intense feeling after you got out of that vehicle what was the most intense feeling that you experienced and how did you embrace it and overcome it
1: most intense feeling when I got out of that car was it was a terrified relief. Right. Relief that I, I felt that I was free, but did I have any idea that I was going to end up in New York and that was a literal escape? I did not. Right. I was terrified to be walking down the interstate in the dusky dark. Right. I was relieved that I had gotten away from this monstrosity of something that he doesn't even know what it is. You know, I I don't know where he is. I don't have any communication, but so it was terrified relief. I embraced it by getting in that car. I embraced it by coming to New York with my son. And when I got here, there was the terrified hit of, you are an abysmal failure in life. You had a life, this is the path, and you've left it. And, you know, I uh, have had many in that life choose him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am considered by many ungodly, rebellious, too sinful to speak to. I lost relationships that were very valuable. I was with my son and his wife for a year in Carroll Gardens and they transferred with a job and I was like I'm not the type of woman to go you know I'm going to stay in the safe place and because I have to make it on my own you know I'm a grown woman and I said I'm going to stay in New York I had a part-time job I was a Starbucks barista and it's probably going to get rough because I had been trying to find a room to rent couldn't afford it and different things and I made it a couple of months a couple of friends was like you know come rent the room here really cheap till you can find it what you're looking for And I did rent a room from a friend for two months. They had family coming in, and I didn't tell them when I left. But I had a couple of friends who were storing some extra things, and I had a little rolling suitcase in my purse, and I got in a taxi, and I gave an address, and I got out October thirty first, 2016, and my home became a homeless shelter here in Manhattan. Manhattan. And when I walked through those doors... I thought it could be the end of me, and I didn't know. Yeah, it was terrifying. I had run a homeless ministry for four years in my old life and um, loved loving on people who life had dealt hard blows. You know, homelessness is not the same story everybody thinks it is. And um, so I entered, and I lived in a room with 30 women in one room, We had 15 sets of bunk beds. Uh, You were allowed a shower every night, and you had someone there with a uh, check pad, and you were timed 10 minutes. 10 minutes to get in, get a shower, clean the shower, and get out. And I didn't think that could be done. But you know it can be.
0: (laughs) (gasps) Wow. I mean, that that has got to be hard, because, like, I know that feeling of when, like, you advocate and you help other people like you help people in homeless situations and you never judge them or anything like that and then when you're put in that situation for some reason you judge yourself so it's like what how did you have to rethink the way that you thought about that situation and everything in general how did you have to rethink everything in order to move forward like what kind of thoughts did you have to produce in your own brain to tell yourself like this is what we have to do to make the next steps to keep moving forward and to not just give up
1: I was cleaning tables at Starbucks one morning Mm -hmm. and a customer came in and she just always had a mobile order and uh anyway she that day for some reason asked me a question she goes "Dietra, do you live in the area And I looked up, and I said, well, I lived in Carroll Gardens with my son and his wife for years. She goes, where do you live now? I didn't have an answer ready. And I tend to be very honest, very concrete. And I said, well, I I live in a homeless shelter. She's like, you do not. And I said, I do. And she said, I've got to get out of here before I start crying. And I was like, oh, don't cry. This is just part of my journey. She ran out crying. And... And in that moment, it was like I just stopped, and I realized I was not embarrassed to tell her that. And it was this feeling internally, which I thought was odd. How could I not be embarrassed to say the words, I live in a homeless shelter? And the next thought in my brain was, then why are you? Because it was like that address didn't define me, and I knew it. Even though it was the definition homeless shelter on the door, I knew that that didn't define who I was or what I was going to be. It was where I was, but it didn't define who I was or what I was going to do in life. And the next thought was, then why are you letting the man you married, your parents, some of your dear people, and things that happened to you in your childhood define who you are? And that's where it stopped me because I was letting that define me. I wasn't letting the homeless shelter define me. I was letting that define me. Honestly, I'm very, very visual. I don't know if I hadn't lived in the homeless shelter and literally had the address, had the life, if I would have been able to comprehend, if this doesn't define me, why do I let this? Because homelessness has a stench, let's face it. It has a stench. Nobody wants to be around it. You're afraid of it. It smells bad at times, you know. It doesn't look aesthetically pleasing at times, and it's uncomfortable, and we don't know what it means, and we want to avoid it, and so I got all that. I got all that, and I realized I was going to have to learn to not let others define me, and that became a journey for me. That was my hardest journey, and I've done 16 shows here in New York and my very first show, they're all called One Woman's Journey to Love. Now, honestly, when I named that first show, when I did it, I knew I was on a journey to love. I thought it was to be loved by a man. What I've learned is it was learning to be loved by me. The hardest journey of all. Because our culture tells us You have to be this, or you're not good. And if you don't do this, we don't love you. If you want blessing, you conform to this. It doesn't matter the culture. It doesn't matter any of those things. Politically, religiously, family, all of those things have defining boundaries of what you have to do to be loved and blessed. And learning that I am my own entity I don't have to have the blessing of a man, as I was taught, his authority, because I, whatever I did, I asked permission. And if something happened I didn't like, I was taught how to make appeals in a proper manner so I'm not out of line to question. To learn that I can just... Like, I started therapy when I entered the shelter. I, I decided to go into therapy. I wonder what gave me that idea. <laughs> and my first question... I look back, and this has been six years ago. And it hurts to know that this was what life had taught me after 55 years. Um, And the therapist was very sweet. She goes, so, Dietra, what brings you to therapy? And I was crying, and I said, I need to know what the rules are for being a person because I don't know and I don't want to break them. And I remember looking at her face And she kind of sat back and looked at me, and she said, Deidre, the rules are you get to do what you want to do.
0: Exactly. The rules are yours to create and break. (laughs) Wow, that's unbelievable. So what happened next after the homeless shelter? What were your next steps? What was your... Goal, what did you want to do, and then how did you make that happen?
1: One goal, get out of the shelter. Yeah. So I started working multiple jobs. Oh, and um, what happened was another Starbucks customer, another woman, one day, d do you live in the area? It was the exact same two questions, same, you know, exact same wording, gave her the same answers. You don't live in a homeless shelter. I said, I do. She said, can I ask some questions? And she asked a couple. And she said, can my husband and I meet with you tomorrow? Now, they were some of my favorite customers, came in every day. I knew their orders. They were delightful to interact with every day. He would come in and, you know, sometimes do a southern accent for me. You know, they were just fun. And they were, you know, it was like I wasn't just a person behind the register for them to get their coffee, I was someone along their path for the day that they enjoyed, and I loved them. So they met with me the next day when I got off work, and the husband was like, so can I ask questions? And I said, look, I don't go around telling it, uh, but ask whatever you want. He has personal questions. He has financial questions. And when he was done, he was like, you know, Deidre, we just know you as our barista, but we love you, and we cannot imagine what you've gone through. So for the next six months, we want to give you this many hundreds of dollars a month. And we don't ever want to be paid back. Oh my gosh. We just want to invest in you. And so the drummer in my band, I had done one show at that time, had bought a place out here in Harlem. And he knew I was in a shelter. Because why don't you come out here and see about renting a room? We said, I'm going to rent to somebody I'd rather rent to you than... He toured with the big band. I'd rather rent to you than somebody's going to trash my place when I'm gone. And so I came out here and decided to rent a room. That meant that I had to get up at two o'clock every morning to get to my job as an opener at Starbucks. But uh, that began a journey of someone invested in me. Someone thought I was worth putting money into, knowing that they would never be paid back. And that gave me hope. And so then I started working four jobs, seven days a week anything to stay out of the shelter, and I continued doing shows. Every show was written to where I was at that time, and my saxophone player, my drummer and saxophone player have been with me since my first show, and he was like, you know, you get to read, hear no people's stories, but it's years after things have happened. He goes, we get to live years with you as you're doing yeah. it.
0: Oh, that is so cool. Um, and your music career, so you've been singing... Since you were young, right? Like in a choir. Tell us that story about your musical career and how it started and how it's going.
1: So when I was four, my dad stood me in a chair behind the pulpit and said, sing. And he was pastor of a little church. And so uh, he had a hymn and it was, take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my savior say, I got out that much and laid my head on the pulpit and sobbed. So he finished singing and I say so that was my, you know, that was the beginning of my emotional music career. Music has continued to be a way for me to let out things I can't let out any other way. It's a way for me to let out joy. It's a way for me to let out sorrow, angst, even anger, if you will. And so I have used that vehicle here in New York. Uh, like, my my world was all hymns, church songs, which was fine. I, I love them to this day. But I always had this, if I was in the car, I was singing a Nat King Cole song. Or I was singing um, Ann Murray song or a Carpenter song. You know, I was, I loved love songs. And so this gave me the opportunity to sing love songs. And I would use narrative and weave together a journey.
0: Wow, that's incredible. And so your shows that you put on... They're about your story, right? And so you, they change every time. Is that right? Wow. So they change every time fit to your story. Yep. That is so cool. That's so, yeah, I know. I've been having to realize mine, too. Oh, by the way, we're smoking uh, Cubans that I brought back from Spain. <laughs> They're little short church hills. Delicious. Yeah, mine keeps going out, too. Um, So what was the most challenging thing about starting your new life, would you say?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the hardest part was becoming de Not the daughter, not the sister, not the pastor's daughter, not the pastor's wife, not the mother, not the wife, Dietra. I didn't know that that she existed on her own. You know, I was taught she was born just to facilitate the male and that she only operated within that realm with his blessing, his permission. And so learning that I was Dietra on my own two legs, A woman with her own entity was my greatest adventure and hardest one. And I've been in New York seven and a half years now. And what I've learned is I like her. I like this woman. She's quirky. Uh, She sings at inappropriate times. And it can be out of context. You know, if you're walking along the sidewalk and you see someone kind of slip and fall, Mm -hmm. you know, my mind goes... Well, I'm falling, which is a love song, has nothing to do. But, you know, that's how my brain works. So, you know, it does. It works in music. So it's just learning I'm okay on my own. Now, sorrow runs through my life due to losses of relationships from that. Do I miss that old only being operating within a role and not a person? No, I don't. I like being my own entity because as Dietra, I am able to love freely. I am able to provide safety for people and do it in a manner to where they can be who they are yeah. and not feel like they have to fulfill a role for me. I like returning that favor. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's unbelievable. So what's, what's next? What's next on the journey? You started your cigar line. What do you want to do with it? Where do you want to bring it? Who do you want to reach with your story and why?
1: Like I said, the cigars become a symbol around. When I asked to have my picture made with a cigar in front of the cigar room, I had no idea the domino effect that would start. Um, The cigars are called Detroit Story. And this launch is going to have, it's going to be Thursday night at 7 here at the Harlem Cigar Room, but it's going to have, the box will have five cigars in it. And there's two uh, Connecticut, two Havana, and one Madura for you to take your own journey to freedom. The kinetic, And these cigars are uh, seven fifty fours, which is not kind of an unusual size, but I chose seven because I had seven long, hard years in New York before the eighth year in the, in the good things began. 54 because I was 54 when I escaped. So just the cigar itself tells the story of don't give up. It takes time. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You know, you can start again. You can have a fulfilling life. You can still achieve. You know, you're not at the end and all used up and battered. So that part tells a story. The Connecticut, what's interesting is each uh, cigar, the, the filling is, the filler is the same. Okay. It's the wrapper. The Connecticut is, you know, lighter, but it gives it... Um, a lighter deal, but it just has a kiss of sweetness. You know, sometimes you have a sweet tip that's really sweet. This is just a kiss. And I did that as a kiss from me to you. A kiss to know, yes, you do life. And there's a little pepper to that cigar. So it has a little sass and that's a little kick to it. So I didn't want it just to be all light. But to me, it's like, yeah, enter into the world of freedom. You know, when you light a cigar, you light it you know, slowly the leaves on the outside. And to me, these leaves have been through every storm of life, just like you have. And they've endured maybe drought that year, or maybe they got too much rain, or maybe they had the perfect blend of sunshine, rain, laughter. You don't know, but it's like you. So you light them slowly. You let the essence of what these leaves have endured out. Then you know how you uh, you get that going, and then you draw. You take deep draws on your cigar to draw the fire into it. And a cigar, for me, is learning how to breathe deeply. Yeah. And I struggle sometimes with that. I, I get scared, and I breathe shallow, you know, and I, I'm afraid. And the cigar has taught me sit back, take some deep breaths, Relax. I've come down here with knots in my neck and upper back from the day. And by the time I'm done with my cigar, I'm like, whoa, this is better. So it's a journey to freedom. It's a journey to debrief. The Habana, which is my personal favorite of my three, the Habana is, you know, stronger and, uh, in its essence, but it's almost like I've lived some life and I conquered it. That's what the Habana is to me. And it's smooth. The Madura, of course, we all know is stronger. And it's like going to sit at the feet of your grandfather. And it's a grandfather that may be a wee bit grumpy, a little bit on the tough side. And he tells you some of his war stories. And he tells you, hey, you need to watch out for this. And you don't do this. And you don't let anybody get this off on you. Kind to everybody. And you smoke that cigar and you know that you have a ways to go in life. But others have gone before you and you can do it. So that's the journey of my cigars, and they're going to be packaged in the box. You know, we are going to sell them individually at some point. But first, I don't know. You've got the journey of the 754, uh, and there's even a clock on the band, which is at 754, and it's the seal on the box. And it's to remind you, time does pass. Use your time wisely. Don't give up on yourself. Don't be too hard on yourself, but learn from what life has taught you.
0: I love that and like how you're saying it took time it took you eight years to get at a comfortable place here in New York and that's with cigars too it takes time to create this thing that gives you all the relaxation and the relief and the freedom just like you said so that's really cool so wow so are you going to be selling online or are they going to be sold in stores where can everybody find your cigars.
1: Well, uh, we are working on a website to be able to sell them online. We're trying to figure out. Uh, I'm, I'm learning as I go. and But Thursday night, they'll be for sale here at the Harlem Cigar Room. And yes, I want to sell them in stores. So, um, you know, I think I'm going to have to become my own sales rep, which will be another learning curve. Uh, And I told Felix, I said, you know, I may just get a tour bus and a piano player and take a tour of cigar rooms and and do a show and sell cigars. I'll have to figure that out. But um, yeah, I'm hoping to make those connections and, you know, be able to say it's a journey that I think from what I've learned, I, my, um, i'm I'm working I have a nonprofit here in New York called One Woman's Journey to Love and I'll have my 50133 through paperwork soon but it's a foundation that says everyone needs to take their own personal journey to love. Maybe you can take that within the confines of your family and friends. It's just a matter of you reframing things and letting them cheer you on as you do it. Right. It could be you need a different job you know maybe you need to cultivate a couple of new friendships you know maybe you need to develop some new habits or learn how to conquer some things. Could be you need to literally escape. Whatever that journey is, start it today. And it's not where you wake up and go, oh, today I'm changing everything I'm eating, I'm doing this. That's not going to happen. It's called one new thought. It's the thinking, you know what? I think I would like to change something and figuring out how to reframe it. For me, being an abysmal failure... Hurt and it confined. And one day I had uh someone who had altered all my dresses for my shows. He came to my first show and he said, I'm gonna design a dress one day. I'm gonna design an exquisite dress and call it Dietra. And I laughed. You know, exquisite and Dietra can't go in the same sentence. But Inside, you know how you can externally be doing something and internally feeling, thinking something else. Internally, I was, I cried and I was like, can that possibly be? Can exquisite and Dietrich go in the same sentence? And as I thought about it, you know, exquisite, if you look it up, means pure and flawless. I I, I can't be that. But I've reframed that word and redefined it. And to me, exquisite now means grace and beauty in spite of and because of. And I do feel like, I, in fact, for my next show, I had picked out a dress, and uh, I picked out one on purpose to feel exquisite grace and beauty in spite of everything and because of everything, and I wore it. it I don't know. I felt beautiful that night. Yes.
0: Oh, that's amazing. So... What is the best advice you can give to someone, someone that might be listening to this story, that might be in the situation that you used to be in? What advice do you give to someone that is looking for a sense of freedom?
1: Number one, define your greatest weakness. To me, your greatest strength is knowing your greatest weakness. Mine was letting others define me. Learning how to articulate who I knew myself to be and who I desired to be and then redefining words, you know, meant a lot. Like one, I realized that every morning when I got dressed after I did my makeup, I was reaching and grabbing this invisible black coat cloak of guilt and shame and wrapping it around me because I thought it was what I had to wear. And when I realized that that address did not define me, I realized I don't have to wear this. It was scary to let that go because it was all well I'd known. And you know how when you're used to wearing something tight and you feel warm and secure and you let it go, the cool wind feels cold and you shiver a little bit in anticipation. Right. And I knew it was going to be difficult, but I could do it. And that began a walkout of, I'm not going to feel guilt. That's their guilt. That's their shame. And I had a lot of childhood things that, you know, make you feel shameful and guilty. But those that's their guilt. That's their shame. I don't have to own it. Yes, terrible things happen, but that doesn't define me. I wouldn't have done those things on my own. Yeah. So it's learning, what's your greatest weakness? What's your greatest thought that keeps reoccurring that says, you can't do this. You're a failure. Yeah. Who told you that? what made you say that? And go in there and go, you know what? Uh, Lots of people fail. I mean, you read the stories of people, you know, Colonel Sanders at how old he was and he did this. Um, Samuel Jackson, read his story. You know, when he began, read these stories in the ages. You're never too old. In fact, last year, uh, I sometimes struggle with, you know, here I am 61 now. And what do I have to show for life? And I read this. uh, So they did a study in the United States. What's the greatest decade of productivity in U.S. people? 60 to 70. I was like, are you kidding me? You know what the second decade is of the greatest productivity? 70 to 80. (laughs) I was like, I'm 61. I've got 19 years of the greatest productivity time in my life. So what am I going to do? Everything I've lived and learned in 61 years, which... You know, thanks and no thanks to a lot of people, I know. I'm going to use all of that, get rid of the shit, let it wash away, find the good things, and I'm going to go forward and live a kick-ass life and figure out how to tell somebody. And I end most of my shows with this thought. You know, uh, when I moved to New York, I don't know how it happened, but people can going to say, you're so beautiful. And I would cringe, you know. It was like, if you only knew. I am not beautiful at all. And uh, it became a problem for me. <laughs> I got told three times one day and went back to my son's apartment. They were at work, and I just got down the living room floor on the rug and was just sobbing. Aww. I was like, three times in one day somebody tells me this? And my son came in from work, and he, he could look at me and tell. And he goes, Mom, what's wrong? And I was like, I got told three times today that I'm beautiful. And, you know, he did the cheesy oldest son. Well, Mom, you are beautiful. I'm like, you're my son. (laughs) Besides, you weighed 11 and a half pounds at birth. You know, you should tell me I'm beautiful. (laughs) And um, he could tell that I wasn't playing. And he goes, so, all right, Mom, you know, what's the deal? People tell you you're beautiful. I said, what if there is a chance that I really am? And he said, all right, let's say there's a chance That's, you're beautiful. What's wrong with that? It was like, I don't deserve it. He goes, Mom, you do deserve it. Learning that deserving has nothing to do with things that have been done to you. (laughs) Changed. And so I realized most time in life, people have their own things that they deal with. No one gets through life unscathed. Nobody So wherever you are in life, there may be something that hurts you on the inside and you feel like it's ugly. Now, some people overcompensate for that, you know. So most of my shows are ended with something that uh, I've listened on repeat many, many times and it's Joe Crocker's song, you know, You Are So Beautiful. And so, you know, I want people to know, I don't know if you've been told recently. I don't know if you've ever been told But I want to be the one to tell that to somebody in your life. You are so beautiful. And you're everything that I needed you to be. Because I don't require you to fulfill me. I don't require you to define me. I just require you to be a friend for the time that I'm with you.
0: That is absolutely beautiful. I love that. What is, what are you the most excited about for your future, learning all of these things that you've learned, you shared your story, you have your cigar line coming out. What are you the most excited about for the future?
1: Well, um, Humans of New York changed my life. Yeah. And with it was attached to a fundraiser. And Brandon was like, you know, Dietra's worked hard all of her life. She's never made any money. Let's help her retire. And I was able to quit my job. Uh, I'm working on, you know, starting the foundation, a line of cigars. I'm working on a book. I'm working on a lot of projects. And uh, one of those things is buying a home upstate. Nice. And after, uh, you know, I entered the homeless shelter October 31st in 2016. And it was the hardest day of my life. And somehow it turned out, I don't know how, except I do believe that God has a way of just intricately weaving sweet gold threads in our life. Mm -hmm. October 31st this year, I was upstate looking for my own home to buy. And how six years later, I entered the shelter on October 31st. Six years later on October 31st, I'm looking for my own home to buy is the most incredible dream I never, I never, it never entered my brain that I could achieve this. Just to be able to finally get a full time job in New York and be able to afford to rent my own apartment, and you know, it's a it's a rent stabilized apartment. It's still careful for me, but to have my own space and then to be able to buy my own home, I anticipate great joy. Um, I hope with the foundation to be able to use it for. Not only the entertainment and shows, but the education of abuse is not always a fist upside your head. There are many ways that you can be told you don't deserve, you aren't, I am, you do this or you're not. That I want to say, you can stand up to that. There are different ways, different paths to do it. There are different ways to learn. There are ways to do it safely. There are ways to get out, you know, Um, but do it, do it. And that's what I want to spend the rest of my life doing.
0: That is incredible. I am so glad that I talked to you today. (laughs) That was a really inspirational story and something that I personally needed to hear. Like just right now in my life, I really needed that. (laughs) I'm so happy I got to talk to you today and hear your story. And I'm so excited to share your story and to see where it goes from here and to interview again years later to see how different your life is and how much it's changed. I know it's going to be just unbelievable. It just with your power, you have a very powerful presence, a very calming, nurturing, powerful, powerful presence. And I'm so glad that I've met you and I get to share this story. I feel very lucky. What else would you like to share with our community, with our friends, everyone listening?
1: Well, if you're free Thursday night, please be here at the Harlem Cigar Room. It's 3456 Broadway. And come join me as we start this crazy journey of Dietrich's stories and cigars. And here's the deal. You know, I've been asked, hey, you know, you've only been smoking cigars two years. What do you really know? So what are you going to tell someone who's been, you know, in this business for 20, 30 years? And here's what I have to say. I don't have that expertise. I don't have that experience. What I bring to this cigar is a resilience and a fierceness yes. of saying, I deserve to be here. I enjoy it. And while, you know, I don't have that, you may like this cigar. Just come try it. Come join me. Come party. Come celebrate a woman that, um, you know, somehow, <laughs> somehow <laughs> got out of one car and got in another and ended up in Manhattan And it's learning to celebrate life and being a woman.
0: Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you again. This has been perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you again, Dietra. You are such a bright light, an inspiration of not only unleashing the possibilities that life has in store for us, but also an inspiration of the kind of human I wanna be around and learn from. And I'm positive so many others feel the same way. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing your story with us. And we look forward to the future. And thank you to all of my listeners for tuning in and having a smoke with us today links to everything you need to stay up to date with Ditra and where to find her glorious smokes will be in the show notes. So check out those links, stay smoky everyone, and I will talk to you soon.